Hello, this is Nikdha from Newslaundry.com bringing you your daily dose of news. Today is Wednesday, the 9th of September. In the last 24 hours, India detected almost 90,000 new cases of the novel coronavirus, increasing the total to almost 44 lakh or 4.4 million. More than 1,000 fresh fatalities were recorded due to the virus yesterday and the death toll is now over 73,900. As the number of new cases outnumber recoveries, the number of active cases of COVID-19 in the country is inching closer to 9 lakh. Daily highs in the number of new cases were seen in the states of Uttar Pradesh, Chhattisgarh, Jammu and Kashmir, Arunachal Pradesh and Chandigarh. The Delhi Metro resumed operations of two more lines this morning. The blue and the pink lines, which form an integral part of the network, began limited services after more than 171 days of being closed. The entire metro network is expected to be made operational for passenger services throughout the day from this Saturday onwards. The Maharashtra government, in response to a public interest litigation in the Bombay High Court yesterday, said that reopening of religious places of worship, even with guidelines, is not practical at the moment. The government said that it has decided not to open places of worship in the state until the situation improves. In an affidavit, the government said, and I quote, The recent Ganesh festival was really an eye-opener. The state had issued guidelines for celebrations and it was expected of citizens to follow the guidelines in true letter and spirit since it is the duty and responsibility of each citizen to cooperate with the state during the pandemic. However, at many places, citizens appeared to be more casual than responsible. Unquote. A new standard protocol issued yesterday by the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare allows schools to partially reopen their doors to high school students only from September 21st. The protocol stipulates that all in-person attendance must be voluntary and that online and distance learning will continue to be permitted and encouraged. A ruling by the High Court in Delhi yesterday ordered that anybody in the national capital who wants to be tested for COVID-19 must possess an Aadhaar card with local address. There was no mention of how people who do not have an address in the city or have not been able to update their Aadhaar information or do not have an Aadhaar card at all can get themselves tested. The ruling also allows tests to be conducted without a doctor's prescription for those who need it, such as those people who are travelling. In an episode of Daily Dose last week, we had reported how the government of Meghalaya had found that 877 newborn children and 61 pregnant women had died in the state in the last four months alone. To give you more information on this story, we spoke to Patricia Mokim, the editor of Shillong Times, in this week's edition of the weekly podcast News Laundry Hafta. She gave us insight into Meghalaya's maternal and neonatal mortality crisis and spoke about her personal experiences while working to create awareness about contraception, reproductive rights and family planning in rural areas of the state. Here is an audio snippet from the conversation. Shillong has now developed slums in different parts and these are the places where you would see poverty. Yeah, there were no slums in Shillong. Out and, yeah. and selling you know, selling bookmarks for five rupees. I mean, a bookmark that costs only 50 paisa is being sold for two rupees or five rupees. And if you ask them why they're out on the streets, they'll say, we can't afford to go to school. Then where's your, where are your parents? My mother goes to work. Where's father? Father has left. This father has left is, is a very common uh, response. Dear listeners, episodes of News Laundry Hafta are available for free for the next few weeks, but soon they will be behind the paywall and will be available only to our subscribers.
In the village of Bagjan on the northern edges of Assam, a massive fire has been burning for the 92nd day today. Shortly after a blowout in the last week of May, an oil well managed by the state-owned Oil India Limited burst into flames and has caused a prolonged ecological disaster, displacing thousands from their homes and causing the deaths of two firefighters. Operations to extinguish the blaze have faced a series of delays, first caused by the annual floods in June and later by an explosion which injured international experts on site in July. Oil India Limited reached the penultimate stage of control operations in mid-August when they successfully placed a crucial blowout preventer device at the wellhead. However, the final stage of the operation, which involved injecting mud at high pressure through the device to shut down the well, failed. Then, just two days ago on Monday, a leak in the well caused firefighting operations to be set back even further. Yesterday, an Oil India spokesperson said, and I quote, Gas has once again started blowing out from the well and the fire, which was extinguished for some hours, has once again started raging. As on Tuesday afternoon, expert teams from Alert Disaster Control and Oil India are carrying out the welding job to plug the leak in the casing thread. Hopefully, the repair work will be completed soon so we can resort to the same gas diversion strategy. Unquote. Lives and livelihoods have been thrown into disarray due to the inferno raging in Bagjan. The Minister of Industries and Commerce in Assam, Chandramohan Patawari, has told the State Assembly that it will take at least another six to eight weeks to douse the Bagjan fire. The Jammu and Kashmir administration yesterday refused to restart 4G high-speed mobile internet services in areas of the Union territory outside the districts of Ganderbal and Udhampur. The decision was justified by citing inputs from security agencies about alleged terror modules trying to lure youth into terrorist organizations using the internet. Internet services were cut off in Jammu and Kashmir more than a year ago on August 5, 2019, hours after the centre revoked the Article 370 of the Constitution and split the state into two union territories. Low-speed 2G internet services on mobile phones was only restored on January 25th of this year, although outages continue to be imposed intermittently and a complete ban on 4G networks persists. In August, the government experimentally restarted high-speed mobile data services in Ganderbal and Udhampur districts on a quote-unquote trial basis until the end of September. The resumption of 4G internet services in the two districts on August 16th came days after the Supreme Court asked the central government to form a special committee to deliberate on the matter of restoring high-speed internet services in Kashmir. The internet shutdown in the erstwhile state has attracted considerable criticism against the Narendra Modi government from various human rights organizations and even internationally. Earlier this year, international watchdog Reporters Without Borders downgraded India's ratings on the Press Freedom Index, saying that India's score was influenced by the digital blockage imposed in Kashmir. On August 26, the Jammu and Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society called the communications blockade on the Union territory digital apartheid and a form of collective punishment unleashed by the Indian government on the people. I'd like to recommend an opinion piece by Evita Das on Newslaundry.com that examines the unsettling long-term plans the Modi government may have for Jammu and Kashmir. Let me read you the first few lines of the essay, which is titled, Was Kashmir being readied for a demographic change even before Article 370 was scrapped? Imagine Srinagar 15 years from now. Instead of spools of barbed wire ringing the iconic Lal Chowk, there are slick shopping malls. The Dal Lake, instead of being impinged upon by houseboats, is a conservation site with floating gardens. The bypass road skirting the city's southern and western edges is the gateway to a special investment corridor. 
This is Kashmir's capital envisioned in the Srinagar Master Plan of 2035. What is behind this vision? Whom is it for? And crucially, was it merely a coincidence that this vision of the city's future appeared just a few months before the Kashmiri people were stripped of their constitutional safeguards? In a recent revelation published by the Economic Times, the Ministry of Home Affairs asked the 15th Finance Commission for rupees 50,000 crores, largely to set up real-time intelligence gathering and population surveillance technologies. The Finance Commission is the panel which determines how tax proceeds will be divided between the union government and individual states. The ministry wants this fund to be evolved separately and exclusively managed by it. In a letter dated in March from the Ministry of Home Affairs to the Finance Commission, the ministry said that a proposed National Internal Security Fund would address the shared responsibility of the centre and the states to ensure internal security. It says, and I quote, states have a shared responsibility for internal security but not for defence, unquote. Prior to this development, the Finance Commission recommended that a sectoral grant be provided to the ministry to be used to train police personnel and improve facilities. However, the Home Ministry countered this recommendation, requesting funding for technology, including real-time reconnaissance and intelligence collection. The creation of such a fund in the current socio-political climate poses worrying questions about citizens' right to privacy and the moral and legal implications of opaque digital surveillance. Privacy is an inalienable fundamental right which is intrinsic to our right to liberty. The Supreme Court itself confirmed it in the year 2018. But what does it really mean? Do we really need it? Can't we all just get along like the residents of the Big Boss house? In an age of rapidly evolving technology where data is now considered the new oil, we have to talk about and understand why it is important to protect our right to privacy. If we don't, we're just handing over our personal lives and the key to controlling our behavior to powerful authority figures and private companies. Data, when collected in large amounts, will always be exploited by those who are collecting it. Do watch episode 4 of the season 2 of Constitution series where Meghnath breaks down privacy, mass surveillance and how to behave when there is a camera in your bedroom. You'll find the episode on Newslaundry.com or Newslaundry's YouTube channel. Dear listeners, this is a good time to remind you that Newslaundry is a 100% ad-free news platform and to help us continue bringing you content like this, please do consider subscribing to us. Go to the website, check out all the stuff we do and if you think we're doing a good job, please do hit that subscribe button on the top right corner of the website. And now for some international updates. As of today, more than 27.6 million people worldwide have been found to be infected by the coronavirus, of which 18.5 million have recovered. Today marks another somber global milestone. There are now 900,000 recorded fatalities due to COVID-19. The pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca on Tuesday said it has temporarily paused late-stage trials of its experimental coronavirus vaccine, which is being developed in conjunction with the University of Oxford. The decision to pause trials was taken after a study participant developed an unexplained illness. In a statement, the company said, and I quote, This is a routine action which has to happen whenever there is a potentially unexplained illness in one of the trials while it is investigated, ensuring we maintain the integrity of the trials. Unquote. The company added that they were working to minimize disruptions to the vaccine production timeline due to this pause. The trials on the pause include those being conducted in India, particularly in Pune in Maharashtra. 
The governor of the American state of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, is refusing to enforce a federal government coronavirus task force recommendation to close bars and require people to wear masks after COVID-19 infections in the area of the state surged. Meanwhile, coronavirus cases have risen sharply across the entire American Midwestern region in the recent weeks. Thailand saw its first domestic case of COVID-19 in nearly three months after a 37-year-old man who worked as a DJ in three different nightclubs in the capital Bangkok tested positive. The man was administered a test because he was entering a prison to serve a drug-related sentence. Contact tracing for this case has resulted in nearly 600 people being tested. All tests have been negative so far. Thailand has reported a total of 3,447 confirmed infections and 58 fatalities, which is one of the lowest in Southeast Asia. The Czech Republic has recorded more than 1,000 new COVID-19 cases in a single day for the first time. On Wednesday, the country reported 1,164 new infections as it battled a surging spread of the virus. Daily case figures have regularly come in above 500 so far in September, already well above a previous daily peak of 377 in March during the first wave of infections. In the province of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in northwest Pakistan, at least 19 people have been killed after a rock slide at a quarry caused a large boulder to fall on workers below. The incident occurred late Monday night and rescue operations have been continuing for the last 36 hours. The quarry is located in the Ziarat area of Mohammad along the border with Afghanistan. The area is known for its high-quality white marble sold in Pakistan and exported to other countries. Labourers often rest at the bottom of the mountains after long working hours. The initial death toll when rescue operations began was said to be 12 people. However, according to the Provincial Disaster Management Authority, additional bodies were found yesterday. 20 injured people have been rescued so far and taken to the hospital. At least 10 people are still missing underneath the rubble, and rescuers are hopeful that more workers can be saved. In the early hours of this morning, a fire broke out at Europe's largest migrant camp, leaving thousands of people without shelter. The Moria refugee camp on the island of Lesbos in Greece caught on fire for an unknown reason, forcing its population of at least 20,000 migrants, including at least 1,000 unaccompanied children, to hurriedly evacuate. Authorities are still investigating whether it is a case of arson. The facility was over four times its intended capacity and groups such as Human Rights Watch have condemned the Greek government for the site's abysmal living conditions. Prior to the fire breaking out, the Moria camp was under a total coronavirus-related lockdown after some of its inhabitants tested positive for the virus. At least 35 of the refugees forced to flee the camp have already tested positive for COVID-19, although authorities said that the number may well be larger as tracing had not been completed by the time the fire broke out overnight. The island of Lesbos has been long been the front line for the European refugee crisis. It has been a magnet for men, women and children moving westward from Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Pakistan and increasingly from Western Africa. Although the numbers have dropped significantly since the height of the drama in 2015, rickety boats carrying desperate men, women and children still arrive from Turkey almost daily. That's all for today. Have a great day or a good night depending on where you're listening from. See you tomorrow. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch 
all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.